Greetings, dear listeners. Britain feels like it's in freefall these days, with the pound tanking and the post-Brexit arrangement showing serious weakness. Shadi and I decided to call up our old friend Josh Glancy, a journalist at the Times of London, to talk about all of that, as well as the role that monarchy has played in keeping the country together. It's an incredibly rich conversation about British political culture and how it all works, and doesn't. Stick around for part two of the conversation, where we get more personal. What's it like growing up in the UK as a non-Christian? How is it different from the United States? And what is Britain's current relationship with the legacy of its empire? It's for paying subscribers only, so head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get the whole thing. On to the show. Josh, I, I, I guess I really just want to ask you uh, what the hell is going on in England right now. It, it, it's, you know, it feels like it's been on this crazy track since Brexit, right? And, and uh, I mean, just in the news right now is, is that the pound is uh, on par with the dollar. And I, you know, listeners probably don't know, but I'm on my way to Scotland and my vacation is getting cheaper by the day. But I, I also <laughs> wonder whether... <laughs> What's going to happen by the time I get there? Uh, what's 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 going on in England? Yeah, I'm missing my uh, missing my dollar salary at the moment. Um, it's it's mind blowing, honestly. I mean, no one has a clue. Is my first answer. We are the brakes are off. Um, and I wrote a piece back in February for the Sunday Times saying, w- "Will the perma crisis ever end?" And it was based on your exact point that al- almost from the moment that Brexit result came in, it feels like we've been on some kind of roller coaster and, and and it's been i mean brexit felt like a sort of huge existential deal and then uh covid happened and brexit suddenly seemed like not such an existential deal but uh, and then we've never really come out of the pandemic the sort of financial hangover from it has been catastrophic we've had this cost of living crisis we've got this energy crisis the war in ukraine uh and now this kind of economic crisis that seems at least to my mind, fairly self-inflicted by our new government. So um, I don't know, none of us, I mean, I remember as a teenager when it was $2 to the pound uh, and I used to go shopping in New York uh, and buy all my kind of Abercrombie and Fitch wear, you know, uh, for dirt cheap. And now it's it's the other way around. And so uh, <laughs> we're all sort of pinching ourselves, really. But, but, there is some, but there is some good news. And I just want to make sure that we highlight this. The monarchy is alive and well, <laughs> and British uh, uh, Brits or uh, Britons are <laughs> are coalescing around this national symbol. And I think, no, on a more serious note, I think there is this really interesting contrast where a lot of the everyday politics in Britain seems to be going downhill, but then you have this real rallying behind the crown. And I think one thing we do want to unpack here, since you are an actual British person and we don't always have them on the show, like I I personally don't understand. So Demir, Demir is focused on the pound and how things are just like going really downhill economically. Yeah, look, managing an economy is difficult. Managing a nation state, things go downhill all the time. You know, Britain will survive. What I don't understand 
is this I, I I have been surprised at the sheer degree of outpouring of sympathy and love and admiration for the British monarchy, for the Queen. And I've lived in Britain. I lived there not a whole not a very long time, but for two years. And I have to say that I'm genuinely confused as to I think there's probably some obvious emotional reasons, but um, but maybe we can also go into that and and how you see the contrast, because, you know, I'm guessing that Brits are negative on their prime minister, Liz Truss, who seems somewhat incompetent, but they are they have this renewed vigor for the crown and and those are coexisting. Yeah, I mean, not only are they coexisting, they're, they're, they're probably in some form of, of negative correlation in a way, I think. The 10 days of official mourning for the Queen uh, in which politics was suspended felt like uh, quite a blessed relief, actually, uh, for the country and and for the political class. I mean, you could go on Twitter and you wouldn't have to sort of cover your eyes in horror at what you see on your feed. It it was a moment of not total unity, but pretty close to it. And a moment of, yeah, okay, some sadness, but actually... Uh, you know, she was 96. She died in her castle. She had an exemplary reign for the most part. So, um, you know, w- one mourned her at her, her, her death, but also celebrated her her life and her reign quite, quite easily. And um, yeah, it was I, I think it's not a coincidence that um, people felt so involved with that, because I think people quite needed a break from from the last six years of crisis and confusion and war and, and everything else that we're looking at in our news feed right now. But Josh, I mean, you know, I, I, you know, we definitely want to talk about the monarchy. Uh, I mean, I think that that was the idea behind all this, but really, you know, I don't want to get caught in the current moment, but this current moment hit like right as the pageantry over the monarchy ended is the positive sort of afterglow of the, of the, the funeral and the coronation. Um, is, is that still sort of sustaining the, the, the country or is it, are you just now flung back into, into the maelstrom. What does it what does it feel from, like right now? I would say from the moment the funeral was over and coverage switched to something else, it, it was buried. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, I mean, she was literally buried, but it, you know, <laughs> it was um, it was no longer front of mind at all. The monarchy exists almost like in the substrate of Britain. You know, is it's 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 a kind of ever present. But the queen is on your coins. She's on your stamps. She's on your symbols. Um, you often don't even think about it very much. It's just there. It's a kind of bedrock. Um, and yes, it's in the newspapers all the time. There's endless scandal and, and and books about it. But but really, for most of us, it's just an ever present. It's like a kind of reassuring uh, backstop, if you like, to society. So we, literally, I mean, Liz Truss, Liz Truss pressed, pressed the button on this mini budget about two days after or three days after the funeral, and it was away we go. And who has time to think about the Queen now when interest rates are going up to God knows what, 6% next year, and um, the pound is down at parity with, with the dollar? It's uh, No one's thinking about the Queen anymore. It's, it's all just happening so fast. People have moved on from the Queen that quickly. Well, well I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say moved on in the sense that I, I'm saying they, they sort of operate almost on different levels. It's like a kind of different form of consciousness. Like we will never forget the Queen. I think she'll be one of the sig- most significant monarchs of of British history in some ways. Um, certainly of modern British history. Um, but and we will talk about her and remember her as long as we all live. But but it it doesn't 
it doesn't live at the forefront of your mind, um, particularly with everything else that's going on. Well, so Josh, you know, I mean, Shadi and I were talking about this, I don't know, two episodes ago. We were just sort of batting around some stuff around the monarchy where we sort of thought it would be, you know, fun to, to delve into it some more. I, is it, you know, for, for an American, and I do want to talk about sort of the weird American obsession about monarchy. You've mm. written about that. But for an American to, to wrap, I'm not a monarchy obsessed person. Sounds like Shadi, even though he spent two years in, in, uh, at Oxford, he wasn't touched by it at all. I, is, is the, 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 the kind of analog, basically the weird reverence that Americans have for the constitution? Is that the, the easiest way for, uh, for an American to grasp the role that monarchy plays in, in sort of the British psyche? Yes, I think so. I think it, perhaps even more than the constitution, um, I would say the flag in a way, someone, someone, I can't remember who it was once compared the queen to, to, to try and explain it to an American um, God, I think it was Douglas Murray. I'm not quoting Douglas Murray. Um, <laughs> but he said, if you imagine the Queen is the American flag, a symbol that you see every day that is ever present in your lives, that has enormous emotional resonance to almost everyone, mostly love, not everyone. Um, but it's not something you necessarily give a huge amount of thought to on a daily basis. It's just there. Uh, and I think for a lot of Brits, that's the monarchy. I think there are passionate monarchists in Britain. I think a lot of People are dispassionate monarchists. They, they sort of generally approve of it. They liked the Queen more than the institution. She was considered particularly special as a monarch. Um, but for a lot of people, it is just a kind of an ever-present, uh, as I said, sort of backstop uh, to, to public life. It's fascinating that you compare it to the American flag. And I'll, I have to disagree a bit there. And I'll, I'll, I'll be curious how you respond to this. I actually think the flag does not really qualify on any of those metrics. I mean, <laughs> um, so first of all, I almost, I very rarely see the American flag. I live in a, you know, a liberal enclave, I suppose, which also happens to be the capital of the country. Um, the flag is not something people have hanging around. Um, and I would actually say that, especially younger left-leaning folks, when they what they associate with the American flag is actually increasingly nationalism, Trumpism. And it's no surprise that if you go to Trump rallies or Trump boat races, apparently that's a thing that you covered um, in one of your columns <laughs> a while back. So, you, you know, that there you see the flag a lot. So it's become politicized. And mm. I don't think Americans love the flag. I don't think that it unifies us. Um, I don't... Um, and it's not really in the background uh, in the way that the queen is on in the background in the sense that she, as you said, she was on, she was on um, <laughs> pound notes and coins and whatever else it might be. I mean, you, you were in the U S for a while and um, I'm curious, like, does that resonate with you that the flag is, is no longer, maybe it was like that, or it was supposed to be that 20, 30, whoever, whatever, or maybe during the cold war at some point, but do you think that it's still the right comparison more so than the Constitution? I think I'm open to the idea that the Constitution is more the analogous, the analogous thing here. Yeah, I mean, I, I take your point. I think I mean, the flag has become politicized, as, as the British flag was in the 1980s when it became the symbol of, of the far right here. Um, but I do think that if you step out of kind of a step out of the left and the online left, I do think the flag is still pretty ubiquitous at every uh, on every on almost every street it's at every sporting event um 
you know, it is, uh, it's on a lot of <laughs> Ralph Lauren shirts or whatever, you know, and it is, it is a kind of ever present in American life, but it's not a perfect analogy. I, I mean, I suppose that the, the, the reverence, that the political reverence that people have for the constitution um, in some ways is, is something that stands above, well, does the constitution stand above politics? Because you, know, you look at the Supreme Court and, and, and constitutionalism versus, you know, it's, it's, opposite in the court and uh, you know is anything is anything left in american life that kind of soars above all that maybe the sort of golden eagle or something i'm not sure well i think part of the problem is that we we all as americans love the constitution or admire it or like it but we just don't uh, but we don't agree on what it actually means Mm. and that's where it becomes very divisive where i think the differences with the monarchy in britain it doesn't have a lot of inherent political meaning, but feel free to disagree with me on that in the sense that um, the queen or now the king don't actually have any political power. They they don't actually do any... I, I don't mean to be mean. I was going to say they don't do anything of note, but of note, I suppose, is subjective. They offer... They offer the the notion of unity. They they get they reassure people. And I think in one of your recent columns, you you compared the monarchy to a soothing balm or um and then you you were go, you were touring around britain asking people how they felt and they couldn't put into words why they mm-hmm. loved the monarchy because for them it was like talking about love how do you explain love to someone who doesn't feel it it's something intangible it's emotional it's hard to describe but it's there and that's good for people people want something to hold on to but if you ask people what is the political meaning of the British monarchy, it's unclear to me what that would actually mean in a tangible sense, where the Constitution does have uh, pretty far-reaching political implications. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a fair point. I think um, the Republican argument, which does exist in the UK, uh, possibly probably most eloquently made by, by Tom Nairn, the Scottish Marxist historian in his book, The Enchanted Glass, uh, is that actually the monarchy is highly political, and that that feeling it engenders in people, that sense of us being a soothing balm, is actually deliberate. And actually, it's a, it's a, it's a means of stultifying British political life. It's a means of entrenching certain privileges and certain systems and, and systems of power in British life. Uh, this is, as you can tell, a very Marxist interpretation. But um, but the, you know, there is an argument that actually the very blandness of the monarchy. Uh, is its sort of strongest political weapon. Uh, and if it, you know, the Queen was a master of blandness, we still don't really know who she was, what she was like. I mean, we have lots of morsels and tidbits and anecdotes, but fundamentally, she kept her true self masked from the people for 96 years, which is an astonishing feat. I, I would say, astonishing political feat in a lot of ways. It's not politics as, as many Americans would understand it, or even as some Brits would, but it is. In arguably a, a form of politics. And, and you know, the, the monarchist argument is that, well, she takes the sting out of public life. I mean, you look at America, you look at the Trump era, for example, uh, you know, and, and I wrote this in, in a piece, like what, what America wouldn't have given in some ways during that time for a, an apolitical president to stand above it all and unite the country. Um, so that's the monarchist argument. But, but the Republican argument is that actually it, it drains us it drains the sort of vigor out of our public life and it it deadens any possibility for reform this is a country with all these kind of ancient hang-ups and privileges that we can't seem to 
move past at times. We still have hereditary peers in our second chamber. I mean, dukes and earls, this, bishops, all these kind of strange anachronisms. So, um, so you can see it as a very political institution. You know, I just, Shadi, you really should write a piece, how the flag means nothing to you, because it, <laughs> it, it struck me as you were saying that, that I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I live in the same city as you do. I'm, I'm in the same bubble as, as you are. But I, I do think you're wrong there on the flag. I, I do think that like the, the symbolism is still pretty powerful uh, across America. But that maybe gets to one sort of question I have uh, on this is, um, are, are you seeing sort of, you know, I mean, I've seen a couple of pieces talking about that, you know, the queen was, as you described it, uh, such a presence and was able to, you know, at least sort of marshal this inchoate power of the monarchy in, a, in an effective way as you know, a bland and effective way. Um, is there is there a, a, a rift also among young people and sort of more progressive people that uh, they they look at all this pomp and say, okay, well, now she's gone. Charles is not that. We can start dispensing with this. Is there a kind of maybe analogous drift in attitudes, maybe liberal progressive attitudes in, in Britain towards a monarchy that sort of Mirror Shadi's disdain for the American flag. <laughs> okay, wait. I think, can I just offer up a point of yeah. clarification? I don't want because I. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, okay, a, a flag banner on our hands there. Yeah. <laughs> I I I like the American flag a lot. I don't <laughs> drape myself with it. Um, I don't know if people do. No, I mean, I guess people don't. They have it on shirts sometimes. I suppose there was actually this famous picture of um, a Muslim woman wearing a hijab headscarf and the headscarf was the American flag, very powerful image. I, but I'm just, I'm actually, as you, as any listener will know, I'm, I'm mostly criticizing liberal elites for their disdain for the American idea, because that's what the flag represents. I just to clarify for newcomers, because I'm sure that Josh will bring new British listeners and I don't want them to get the wrong idea. Okay, Josh, over to you. Okay. So Generation gap. Like, I mean, yes, to some extent, inevitably, you know, among younger and more progressive people, there is less of a, a veneration for the monarchy. I mean, the Queen was almost universally popular, even amongst millennials and Gen Zers. Um, but, you know, she was sort of the nation's grandma, if you like. But, you know, yes, there is less veneration for the monarchy as an institution as you go younger. But it's remarkably how well it holds up. And... Uh, as people get older, I think they do start to appreciate its presence more. I know I did. I was quite a staunch Republican as a as a student, and I'm now pretty ambivalent about the whole thing. Um, so I don't fear for the existence of the monarchy in Britain. I mean, that was always the thing. People always said, oh, the Queen dies. No one really likes Charles. He's a kind of tainted figure. And that'll be that. That'll be the slow drift into into the abolition of the monarchy. I don't really buy that. I think her death was a, was a moment of renewal of interest in the institution and people got to reconsider what it was and what it meant to them. And uh, I think the response was broadly positive. But the British monarchy is outside of... Uh, outside, in the developed world, it is almost uniquely powerful and splendid. Uh, not, and, I mean, maybe you could go to Thailand or somewhere and find something similar, but, but I think that may change. You know, whether we move to something closer to what Denmark has or Holland or Spain, um, where we slim down the institution and uh, make it less of a presence in everyday life, that's a possibility. 
but you know the truth is I, I don't know people really love it and people re- and the more difficult modern life gets I think the more people appreciate the pomp and the circumstance. I mean, I, I had a really interesting moment. I was in Belfast. I was following King Charles III on his new his sort of tour of the four kingdoms. And he went to Scotland and Northern Ireland and Wales. And, and I was in Belfast and he was driving down from uh, Hillsborough Castle to, um, to a cathedral in the city. And everyone was lining the streets to see him. Well, all the Protestants were. There weren't many Catholics there. But, um, <laughs> and he came down and he was in a kind of black BMW with four Range Rovers. He looked like a sort of a, you know, a, a, a high class Senator and not, not the King. Whereas his other parts of the tour had he'd been in the, uh, uh, is it the Rolls Royce Phantom. It's incredible sort of old fashioned Royal car. Uh, and people were really disappointed. A couple of people turned around to me. They were like, well, that was rubbish. You know, they wanted the car. They wanted the white horses and the cockades and the, company of royal archers and all the absurd anachronisms that we saw on some of the other marches that week um because it was an it was a break from the mundane screen focused realities of their daily lives okay so i i don't want to i want to save you said that there's a perception that prince and now king charles is tainted you know, I take a little bit of offense to that because I think I know what you're talking about, Josh. But we'll we'll um, we'll save that for part two, so listeners have something to look forward to. Um, but um, I think that I've got you know on a more substantive point, and I'm genuinely interested in this, and I've been thinking about it more as of late. Um, is it actually true that the British monarchy? Um, softens polarization? Does it, as you say, Mm. take the sting out of politics? Because I think from an American perspective, we can look at Britain and we can say, oh, well, actually, it was quite polarized during Brexit. In one of your pieces, you say that disagreements over Brexit don't quite match the disagreements we have in America. And I think that the analogy you used is if you're dating um, in America, in a liberal city and you say, um, you know, I'm a Republican or I supported Donald Trump, that can often or most of the time be a deal breaker. And I don't know if this is true, but I took that to mean that Brexit, like you could go out on a date in London and you could say that, oh, I support Brexit. And that wouldn't necessarily be a huge problem. You wouldn't be beyond the pale. And I just want that, I, I want to clarify that because I think a lot of Americans would have assumed that Brexit was a kind of dividing line within families, among friends, and it got really, really intense. Although I could be, you know, misconstruing that. No, uh, you're right, it did. And, and there was a lot of tearing our hair out about polarization and are we turning into America and the culture wars have come to our shores at last and um, yeah, families were sundered and relationships were broken and I'm sure dates ended prematurely as a result. I just don't think it quite has the existential heat that the Trump era had in America where people, I mean, maybe some people in the margins and the fringes felt this, but I think a lot of people in the middle just genuinely didn't feel that passionate about it. You could, I mean, I was a Remainer, but I really didn't care that much. I mean, I'm pretty annoyed by the whole thing, but like it, it doesn't, huh. you know, people in my family voted for Brexit. I don't hate them for it. I, I occasionally make the odd sarcastic remark about it, but like there are plenty of people in Britain who felt 
quite tepidly about it. I didn't meet that many Americans. There are some, but I didn't meet that many who didn't have a fairly strong opinion on Donald Trump. Um, so I just think it just had it just it has less heat in it. And I don't think you can subscribe that ascribe that exclusively to the existence of the monarch. But I do think it is a system that allows us to hate our politicians without wanting to kill them. If you see what I mean? Well, yeah. Well, so but. You know, you're, you're mentioning earlier that the Republican argument against it, right, that it actually sort of keeps uh, uh, the polity quiescent in a way. And, I, you know, I, I, in, in reading all the stuff about it, it, I always forget how to pronounce the guy's name. It's Walter Badgett. Is that how? Badgett. 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 Yeah. Uh, the, the author of the, the famous, I mean, was he the Economist? Uh, he was the founding editor of The Economist, wasn't it? Or, or very early uh, on? Not founding, but he was the sort of uh, iconic editor of and and writer of the english constitution where he has that 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 clever flip side i guess the, the sort of monarchist argument for exactly that that you know it's the it's to distract the the rabble while the dirt the dirtiness of politics actually happens behind behind the mm. scenes it's the, the the flip side of the um of the same thing i mean i guess that the question for me you know sort of at least being sympathetic to the monarchist argument for that this is necessary to keep a country together um is there would there be danger of of, you know, if the monarchy literally just sort of went away within the next 10 years, somehow abolished itself? Turns out Charles just doesn't want to do it. And somehow, you know, just it, it drifts away. Would it would would that be a way to test Shadi's proposition? I mean, would would Britain cohere less like fundamentally? Would it would it uh, would it get nastier? Well, uh... On that point, I, I take uh, quite a sort of small C conservative view. And this is kind of why I'm very loosely in favour of keeping the monarchy nowadays is because I, I believe that when an institution is so rooted in a, in a nation's history and identity, um, that to take it out would, would inevitably cause turmoil. You know, it's a difficult counterfactual because I think if you uprooted the monarchy or ripped it out of British public life, I think, I think you would see turmoil and, and distress because it's been there for so long. And I think that's a strong argument for keeping it. I mean, remember, one of the few lectures I attended at university that stayed with me was by the Marxist philosopher G.A. Cohen. Uh, and and he, he argued that, and it was actually a, a total argument for conservatism, which is small c conservatism, which I, I, I was surprised to hear from someone like him. But he was saying that, you know, institutions accrue value as, as you know, over time. And, and we don't, we often underestimate the the pain and trauma that's caused by removing them and abolishing them um the sort of anti-revolutionary argument if you like and uh, i that's my view on the monarchy so I, I think it would um would we be capable of living in a more in a with a president and a republican system yeah sure i'm sure we'd get used to it you know we're still a vaguely functioning country at least except for this week um <laughs> but uh, I do think that to lose the monarchy abruptly in that way would be would be very distressing. Hmm. So one thing I struggle with is when we say that the monarchy in Britain is powerful, I just want to interrogate this word power and powerful because I don't fully understand it. Hmm. Um, because, okay, so we're talking about um, a constitutional monarchy that doesn't really have political prerogatives and it's supposed to be a political um above politics that sort of thing but maybe can you, i mean 
what does the monarchy to what extent can the monarchy interfere even around the margins in daily politics i mean clearly um the queen was very careful to not even as you say not even make apparent what she believed like we I, that's remarkable to me we actually mm. don't know who this person is and i um and i'm just surprised that like no one in the palace did some like tell all story or here's mm. when i hung out with the queen where did the queen go out for dinner like when she was younger um did she go out on the town um like it's just amazing to me that there wouldn't be any account of a distinctive personality. Um, that's just one thing that I find incredible. Um, and that must take a lot of self-discipline to basically hide yourself in that way. But that might also be particular to her. And I wonder if Prince slash King, oh, sorry, King Charles now, who obviously has more of a political background, he has taken positions in the past, he has said potentially controversial things. To what extent could he test the limits? Could he, could he, in a sense, politicize an apolitical institution and use the weight of the monarchy to, to actually affect policy in some way? And that would obviously test, not necessarily, um, well, I mean, Britain doesn't really have like explicit rules on this, but so some of it would be testing norms. And that's where it gets like a little bit fuzzy. You're mm. not supposed to do certain things, but theoretically, you could do them. You could push. Well, I mean, even to mm. to, to build on that, Josh, maybe you can uh, remind listeners. I left and... Josh speechless. No, 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 no. But I, <laughs> no, I, I've, I've been. I was making notes because there were about six six questions in there. Well, no, I, I, <laughs> look, Josh, we don't want to be inter interrogating you here. I just it's it's, it's just sort of like a, a, no, it's a fascinating a, a broad sort of area of interest. You know, I mean, one thing you might sort of remind listeners and explain to me again uh, the whole the whole again. Listeners should remember there is no what Shadi was alluding to there, right? There's no there's no written constitution. It's 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 all precedent in a lot of ways. How how did that 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 whole story about proroguing parliament? What was that all about? And how did that work? And what was the sorry, Demir? Pro what? Prorogue, isn't that the the word, Josh? Yeah, that is the word. That's uh, it, that it, it came up that that uh, at some point during the crisis, it was with Boris Johnson. It might have even happened with Theresa May. There was some call for for she wouldn't dissolve parliament but basically call the session into end and would that trigger an election or something like that it's sort of in her power isn't it or was um right so the prorogation of parliament happened in 2019 um that was that is like a lot of things it's theoretically in her power um but uh the uh prime minister advises her to do it uh, and she does it basically, um, but the it, it got shut down in the courts. Basically, mm -hmm. uh, it was an attempted prorogation that, that the courts uh, basically squashed. So she doesn't have the power then. She was. I think it was revealed through sort of tortuous ways that she wasn't particularly happy about this. Um, every once in a while, the queen sort of very subtly makes her opinion known on something she did it during the 2015 scottish referendum when she was asked by some well-wishers outside a church what she thought 
about the referendum, whether Scotland should break up with the UK and be independent. And she said, I think people should think very carefully before they vote, which is sort of <laughs> a masterpiece of political messaging. <laughs> um, uh, and was a headline, you know, it was headline all over the country because, because everyone kind of knew what she was saying, but, but it was a kind of blameless intervention. Um, so, but the prorogation is a good example, you know, of the limits of royal power. There's nothing she can do. Uh, Charles knows this too. I mean, he has a history of intervening inappropriately in his political issues that he cares about, from architecture to planning to environmentalism. Um, and there are all these memos he's written to politicians called the Black Spider memos that were pretty highly inappropriate. Uh, and he knows, having watched his mother do this for 73 years, um, or pretty almost 73 years, uh, that he can't behave like that now that he's king. He's been quite explicit about that. But he will be unable to resist being more interventionist. Uh, and I think at this point, people are expecting that, honestly. There was a whole play called King Charles III by Mike Bartlett in 2014 that was about this very thing, and it all ended in a total debacle. I think he'll put his thumb on the scales a little bit more, uh, but ultimately he knows that the survival of the institution depends on, on it being at least perceived as apolitical uh, and above politics. And so in answer to your question earlier, Shadi, like what is royal power in Britain? Um, it's, it's mostly, it's most, I mean, there are, it's mostly really soft power, but, but a lot of it, um, you know, I'm always interested watching the royal lobby, uh, the journalists who cover the royal family permanently. And it's like the rules of journalism. And I, I say this, these are esteemed colleagues. They do a great job. <laughs> the structure of it. Is, of course. Like, you know, completely unlike any other form of journalism, you're not holding them accountable you're not searching for scandal or truth. It's a constant negotiation of, you know, what, what is one allowed to say? What are the limits of propriety? And, um, and it, totally, you know, totally different to how we cover our politics, which is we sort of smear them in as much shit as possible and see what sticks. Um, <laughs> uh, and so, you know, royal power is that sense of, you, of, of being, you know, um, untouchable almost, uh, of there being these very clear limits and I think we're going to see some of those limits tested uh, in the media during Charles's reign because there is quite a lot. My colleague Gabriel Pogland at the Sunday Times has done fantastic investigation work on Charles's finances, his charity work. We're talking, you know, Qatari shapes giving him a million bucks in or a million pounds in, in a Fortnum and Mason's bag over the table for his charity, which which helps support some of his country houses so Wait, they put in a, they put it in a in a bag and yeah like literally they just yeah put a lot Mason's of Mason's bag they're kind of bright they tend to be sort of bright blue carrier bags couldn't they just wire it <laughs> well i think it's I more think impactful when someone just hands you a <laughs> sack of cash but you know that is that's pretty 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 out there stuff um there will be more stories about charles there will also be um, the next series of The Crown, which is going to involve, which I think you alluded to earlier, Tampon Gate. Uh, and there will be Prince Harry's memoirs coming out uh, in November too. So there's going to be some bad publicity ahead for Charles. So I, I think we're going to see, I think he may test the limits of his power, but I think we're also going to see the media test the limits of how far it's willing to go to undermine the crown and attack the crown. It's always been very happy to attack members of the royal family, but leave the Queen was always left pretty much untouched, except a little bit when Princess Diana died uh, and then the country was in such a ferment 
that he, she she caught some flack for that too. Okay, this might be a dumb question, Josh, but who? How is the royal budget overseen? Um, <laughs> oh, is that a? Oh, great. Okay, it's controversial. <laughs> well, it's it's well, it's kind of controversial. I mean, one of the weird things about British public life is Parliament almost never speaks about the royals. Uh, it almost has like there's like an omerta of pe- like people in Parliament basically don't bring up royals because like the whole Prince Andrew uh, paying off. Uh, after being alleged of having sex with a 17 year old American girl, uh, didn't wasn't discussed in Parliament. It's seen as uh, off limits, which is quite strange. Parliament how, does con- how it does it, control the- how would it be on. discussed in Parliament though? I mean, I, I, I even sort of I, I, how would you discuss that in Parliament? I guess charges or I, I, I... you could express distaste um, if you were a left wing uh, Republican. MP, of which there are several, you could say, well, isn't this a, an example of why this is a corrupt, decadent institution? I and see, maybe see. we should abolish some of these minor royal titles and just keep the slim it down, which is something that's in the ether. Hmm. Um, Parliament does control the royal budget. Uh, basically, the royal family has kind of public wealth, which is many billions of pounds, but it doesn't, is then given a grant out of that wealth by Parliament uh, every year. Um, which is known as the the sovereign grant, which it then spends on keeping up its palaces and doing its royal duties. How much are we keep... talking about here? Uh, I think it's something like a billion pounds a year, but I can't I can't remember exactly. But you know they have a lot of stuff. But you know the argument, which I think is right, that's always made, is that they bring in twice that in tourism um, and soft power diplomacy abroad. The, you know a royal state visit hmm. as, as a diplomatic tool. I mean the Americans in particular, get incredibly excited by visiting Buckingham Palace. I mean, the Obamas love the Queen, you know, not just not just the Republicans. Um, so that's their public money. They also have private money, which they don't pay inheritance tax on, um, which, uh, so Prince Charles has a the Duchy of Cornwall estate, which he's now passed on to William, which he's quite been quite active in enlarging and investing in. And that's thought to be worth about a billion pounds. There was a good piece in the New York Times about this recently. Um, and that's a little bit sketchy as well, because he, he's able to make investments uh, and probably not be beholden to the same sort of rules and pushback that he might be if he were not the Prince of Wales or now the King. So um, their private royal finances, again, we don't know very much about it. We won't, we won't see the Queen's will, um, or very unlikely. Uh, and there is still a lot of mystery, almost deliberately, about how much how rich are they and where it, where is it all? Hmm. Uh, on 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 Americans love of of the monarchy I, you you wrote uh, a piece uh sort of musing on this uh, I, I i guess it was you you alluded to it earlier and we'll put all of them in the show notes or, so uh listeners can uh can read all your stuff the the thing that that i find baffling and i mean maybe i think this is where Shadi and i are, are on the same page is who are these people that love the monarchy among Americans? And let me be even, even <laughs> let me be even somewhat nastier about this. I don't know any men who love the monarchy. I know mm. some some women who do, mm. but like, and you know, even when I'm reading your piece, Josh, I, I get the sense that it's it's if if there are American men that love the monarchy, it's because their wives or girlfriends are are are, are sort of really excited about it, and then they they go over there. Maybe I'm overstating it and being a little nasty here, but like, am I onto something there? Yes, I think it is, it is, it is quite gendered. Um, partly, I think, maybe because we've had a queen for so long. Mm. Um, but no, it is, it, because it is part of what they love about it is, is the soap opera. And it's the, it is the ultimate soap opera. 
and it's it's the fusion of kind of english or british tradition and grandeur with uh just gossip politics you know and, and just this sort of tawdry realities of a family trying to hold itself together and i think it's that combination that you know you go into supermarkets all over america you see from from vanity fair through the new york post through to the supermarket tabloids uh they are on the front pages all the time mm. um you know they have that reality tv show of like trying to with prince harry lookalikes um obviously the whole mega markle thing has fascinated everyone and, and has touched kind of um progressive and, and black america in a way that maybe not every other parts didn't um so I, I do think it runs pretty deep, but you're right. Uh, if, if I had to describe the, the quintessential royal American royalist, I would be thinking of a middle-aged, middle American, sort of middle-class woman um, who sort of devours a lot of glossy magazines. Hmm. Well, but that well I have some memory. Bit, that's probably a bit mm. of a stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I have, I have some memory in the 90s. Um, maybe this was an almost universal thing because Diana was at a different level. But I remember, I remember that. I mean, and my mom, I remember my, my mom certainly followed it very closely. And I think she had like many American women, an emotional attachment to Diana. And I don't think my mom necessarily fits into um, the kind of uh, whatever we were describing, the kind of people who would otherwise be into the British monarchy. But um, although I will note, I will note, I do, I do have a recollection of my late grandmother, um, Egyptian, you know, who uh, in Egypt say, you know, would, I don't know if she was a hundred percent serious, but she would sort of say things like, you know, if only we still had the British, you know, British colonialism, that was actually not so bad. If only like, at least they were able to help run things more effectively and, we could bring back the um, the king. Anyway, that's just like a little aside. <laughs> Let me try to remember where I'm going with this. But but um, I think that You're talking Diana, about Diana certain yeah Diana certainly captures a certain moment. I think I think that I also remember that we were intrigued by the fact that Diana was dating. I don't know if there if it was official, but certainly she had a close friendship. Um, with an Egyptian man, Dodi Fayed. And I, I very much, I, I remember that very vividly that there were conspiracy theories that not, a, not my, with my family, but I remember like in broader Arab and Muslim circles, um, I don't want to, it was probably a minority of people, but that <laughs> Diana was, um, was targeted and, and killed through this apparent car crash because she was going to marry a Muslim man and that had to be stopped. Well, there were, anyway. there were plenty of those conspiracy theories in the UK too. So <laughs> <laughs> the Prince Charles did it with his buddies at MI5. That was the sort of, uh, sorry, Prince Philip, I mean, did it, did it through MI5. But I mean, yeah, uh, that has been comprehensively debunked. Um, <laughs> Thanks yeah, for I mean, uh, clarifying that. I mean, Diana was, but Diana was totemic for everyone in a way because she you know, royalists and because she was a kind of anti-royalist royal. She was, as Tony Blair called her, the people's princess. Uh, she wasn't anywhere near as well liked during her life, but her death made her a saint, uh, a martyr even. Um, and 
you know, the royal family was blamed, the tabloid press was blamed, but she was, and she was beloved in America, I think partly because she represented that a royal rebellion, if, if you like. In America, hmm. they, hmm. they respected her rebelliousness, her, her sense of the common touch, but they also admired the fact that she was a princess uh, and she sort of rose above, above them too. Um, and I've, I've been on, the amount of taxi rides I've been on around America, people of all shades and stripes, uh, ages and, and genders saying to you, uh, oh, we love Diana. Oh, hmm. we're so, we were so sad. I mean, it was, I mean, it was 25 years ago. Uh, but... Um, it was just such an extraordinary collision of, of different things um, that, yeah, it, it resonated very deeply for Americans. I think Diana was almost as popular as the Queen in some ways. Uh, and, and that's a, the other part about America again, right? I mean, I, after my, my sort of uh, impolitic remarks about this being a woman's thing, there is the, right, the, the other part that, that our presidency is monarchical, right? And, and mm. uh, I, I was looking up before we, we had this conversation where, where it came from, but it was, it was Vice President uh, John Adams who, who was suggesting different titles for the presidency. And I think, like, uh, you know, uh, before Washington quashed all of them, it was His Elective Majesty, His <laughs> Mightiness, and then also His Highness, the President of the United States of America and the Protector of Their Liberties. Those were all titles for the president that, that were, like, being mooted, I think, uh, you know, in that, in that early period. So, I mean, I don't know. I, 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 there is that kind of weird reverence we have for the presidency, which I think we've lost with Trump, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of what happened. And again, you've alluded to this before, but it's, it's Trump that, that, that was the real nail in the coffin of, of just uh, tarnishing that almost sense of awe that we Americans have of the presidency, which is probably at least roughly analogous to, towards the, the, the British experience. I don't think that's right, Demir. I think Bush ended it. I Did mean, I, I actually... Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't have any recollection in my adult life of this kind of respect for the presidency that you're talking about. No, but look, and I remember. Go on. Yeah. You know what I'm getting at? Just respect for the presidency. Obviously, politics was always there, and you were always like going after each other about it. But you know what I mean? Like there was still this this sense of you know, for example, I just the Obamas, right? Not not. I mean, I think a reasonably popular presidency, um, though the country became more polarized as it went on. But but there was you know there's. Michelle Obama, the first lady, and there's all this sort of, I don't know how to put it, just... Reverence. Reverence and, and, and a lot of this kind of very soft coverage, this, you know, dewy glow. And, I mean, Obama was also quite good at it, right? He had a, this uh, very talented set of photographers who, you know, had him doing this sort of stuff. And, and this was, like, out of the press. And there was a sort of aura to the presidency. However much there was division over Obama, there was, there was, there was a kind of awe in the office. And, and let's also not forget, I mean, I think the fact that, that you know, uh, a black man was elected to the presidency, there was a kind of big significance to that. Not that we have elected a chief executive, uh, you know, of the country who happens to be black, but we have elevated a black man to the highest sort of exalted office. There was that, that aura to it. I don't know, Shadi. Am I wrong? Am I? Am I? Am I just pulling this out of my ass? I, I feel like it's true. No, no. Look, I think. No, I see what you mean. I think. I think you're partly right about that. I, I just. I guess what I have in mind is, I. I remember. I mean, the Bush years are really resonant for me, um, in part because I was living abroad for a good chunk of it, and I could see how people reacted to um, George W. Bush and what he was doing post nine eleven, the Iraq War, and I remember. 
I don't want to say shame. I don't want to overstate this, but I I do remember feeling like almost like I didn't want to. I don't know. I well, I was. I'm trying to remember what I was like back then. I mean, I so it depends what. <laughs> not to go into like my life story, but I do remember there was this reticence to say too much about being American because there was so much dislike and even hatred of George W. Bush in the Middle East. I don't, that wasn't the case with Trump. I don't ever, because I think it was very easy to say, you know, like obviously Trump doesn't represent me. I didn't feel like I had to explain Trump away when I was abroad the way I did with George W. Bush, in in part because there was so much, and maybe this is actually would support your point, that there was so much unity, at least in the beginning, around George W. Bush and even the Iraq War. I mean, there was considerable bipartisan support and there was almost a deference, especially after 9-11. But I remember feeling just in a very personal way, deeply uncomfortable with the presidency as this symbol. So maybe I'm just projecting my own particular experience in that regard that um, anyway. Yeah. I don't know, Josh. Does that is it? Does it resonate? Well, you know, well, I think in a way, in a way, I think I think Shadi's your the shame that you and others feel when certain presidents are in office, in a way, reflects the admiration you have for the office itself. It's 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 that you know you you want someone who represents America well because the office is so mighty and powerful and splendid, and because you know I think one of the things that really bothered people about Trump, who hated him, was that all these trappings of American power and all these kind of flummery and uh, that, that goes around the presidency was being given to this vain, egotistical, sort of narcissistic man. Uh, and they were playing hail to the chief to him and he has the Marine band and he has the nuclear football and all these kind of trappings of the, being the most powerful man in the world, supreme commander, um, were given to this douchebag from New York. And I think... Um, I think... <laughs> I think the office of the presidency, I think most Americans hold in enormous regard. I think they just happen not to, uh, you know, most of the time, half the country kind of hates the person who's in it. That's it for part one. Head on over to part two of the conversation where we get more personal. What's it like growing up in the UK as a non-Christian? How is it different from the United States? And what is Britain's current relationship with the legacy of its empire? It's for paying subscribers only. So head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe to get the whole thing. Hope to see you in part two.